that uh, this is actually the Tralokana that says Sabe Sankara Anicca. Everything is in turmoil. Everything is in flux. Things kind of look stable, but they're not really. Uh, the keyboard of the computer and the screen get dusty and dirty and need to be wiped off. Okay, that's a, a form of anicca, but in that regard too, it's a form of inherent uh, un unsatisfactory or not up to some standards that only a human could dream up. Dogs don't care whether this screen gets dusty or not, and out it gets dusty even more than it would if it was in a sealed room like your house. Yeah. So dusty screens we know all about. Now, in that regard, we have a mindset in that, in that way for dukkha. And that, in fact, it winds up being that in a certain way of looking, everything is dukkha. In fact, that's the phrase, sabe sankara dukkha. And it is always dukkha when uh, there's a human around involved with it that wants to take selfish control over it, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. It's actually what that's pointing at from the third part of sabe dhamma anatta is, is that there really is no self inherent anywhere. Not in gold, not in laptops, not in dogs, not in humans, not in stars. Nowhere is there a real core or center or starness at the, at the core of a star. There is no black holeness in a black hole. But boy, is there a whole bunch of stuff happening at the event, event horizon. <laughs> and so uh, everything has no inherent core. So that's like and, an emptiness thing. Right, everything, in fact, that's the quality then. If it's empty of a self, then it is truly empty because nothing has an own, its own central core. Okay, if that's true, and us humans understand that, then th we will see that if we try to give it a core, that will mean that it's suffering, where in fact really what's going on is just a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche, and a bit of more a Nietzsche. And that's all we've got here, is just to be able to watch this marvelous flow of everything dancing in front of us but there's nothing substantial there. It really is like we're watching a movie, and in many ways we are, because we cannot, in fact, be actually uh, in re real reality in real time, because the human brain is not constructed that way. What we do instead is we process things for an understanding so that we can come to an internal um mentalization of what's in the real world and then that's what we respond to yep. that in fact is one of the primary teachings of Paticca Sambhupada because that begins to point out that we don't live in the real world 
we live in a constructed reality and that that instructed reality impacts us. And if it impacts us ignorantly, that will be sure to strengthen uh, the concept of a self that can suffer. I feel now, like a lot of the time it's, um, the, the, you know, there's um, everything is impermanent and it's it's how we kind of we want to hold on to it we don't want it to change um with with most things um with i suppose with everything and and that's what causes a lot of problems precisely so you just nailed it in fact all we have to do is add a couple of poly words to give them definitions but what you're saying is exactly right that holding on to wanting things to not change when they do change. A, a, a clear way of saying that is, is that I had it and I've lost it and I mm. miss it. Yep. I had it, I lost it and I miss it. All right. If you think of that, that can be anything, including mm. the loss of a laptop. But it can also be just the dirty screen on the laptop. Uh. And I don't like the dirty screen, okay? I, I, I am at a loss for the beautiful new uh, clean screen that I know I could have if I only wipe hard enough. <laughs> uh. And then I suppose, you know, you could go the nihilism route, which is, well, what's the point of wiping it if it's just going to get dirty again? Um. That's well, an interesting that's really point, side story. Well, actually, <laughs> we can look at it from that perspective because uh, uh, the big issues about religion and having life after death and uh, uh, heavens that go on and hells that go on and on is that that's an inter eternalism. Things just keep going forever, but it changes a bit here and there, but not substantially enough. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, it may eventually fall apart. But for all intents and purposes, in the way that we think, it is, in fact, quite permanent. And so there is this thing called semi-permanent. It's at least permanent now, even if it does someday fall mm -hmm. apart. Yep. Um, and then there is the thing called annihilation. And that is, annihilationism is when the existing being upon the death of the body, the existing being uh, breaks up also. That uh, the annihilation of the existing being, okay? The Buddha doesn't talk, teach that either. Mm -hmm. Nor does he teach nihilism, because nihilism, uh, ultimately, uh, the view of the atheist drive-by shooter, you know, what's the hell anyway? Yeah. Always at the bottom of that, whatever level of morality he has, he has the viewpoint, I can get away with it because it doesn't mean anything anyway. So mm -hmm. I can get what I want. And what they're missing out on is the fact that they still want things, that they're not really nihilistic. They're taking a nihilistic view, but then they're out doing what they want to do and thinking that they yep. can get away with it. There, there's no results. There's a cause without any effect. I had a phase where I went into some 
pretty deep nihilism and yeah it was kind of like that didn't shoot okay. anyone but it was kind okay. of like that so if we have this concept of eternalism semi-eternalism annihilationism nihilism and the buddha doesn't fit into any of those where does he fit that's uh, the middle ground right and we could call that what uh uh, temporary initialism? No. An Anichaism? Anicca dukkha anattaism? That might be the way to, to say it, but um, it doesn't fit in with any of these other time frames. Mm. Nihilism means never was. Annihilation means yes, but then no. Mm. And eternalism means yes, 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 and I'll still say yes long time from now. Mm. But eventually I may say no. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's semi-eternalism. Okay, so in that regard then, the Buddha doesn't fit into any of those. And in a way, you could say that any of these other isms are um, sort, some sort of wrong view. But when we come into right view, we can see that it's right view, but it's really hard to define it. Mm. Yeah. Because we normally define things in the sense of what faults we can find with it or where it doesn't fit that and does fit this and that sort of thing. Okay. Which now leads into um, something that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa liked very much. He liked about the story of Adam and Eve. That, and he read it in the Bible, the Thai version of the Christian Bible. But he never got the Christian version of the story of Adam and Eve. All he got was the Thai language version uh, of it. Okay, so we have to start with that as a premise because now he's going to look at it with completely fresh eyes. Okay, and that one of the things that we see within Christianity of the way that they look at it is we can look at any kind of a story that has a moral or a point to the story or a lesson. And like Aesop's fables and uh, uh, the race between the rabbit and the tortoise. Mm. And it has two different ways of looking at it, but there's still a moral at the end of the story. Okay. So, if Adam and Eve can be seen as a moral story, then it looks like that Christianity got so wrapped up into the story itself that they failed to understand what the moral was. Okay. Okay, so what is the story? The story is about talking snakes and women feeding men a bunch of crap, and uh, everybody gets naked, and uh, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden they get tossed out of something that they thought was their home and now they have to suffer. Mm. Okay, and now they have to suffer is a very important point in there. Because the point of it is, is that if you look at from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's position, it's not about the setup between either an Adam or an Eve or a talking snake or whatever that fruit was that many people think was an apple. It could wasn't have been. An apple? Well, it could have been a fig because they covered up with a fig leaf, and so they're more likely to have figs close around than apples. Uh -huh. But 
the story is, is that it's an apple. Mm-hmm. But the right way to look at it is, is that the word fruit is not the fruit actually of a tree, but it's the other way that that word is used <clears throat> in the sense of any kind of fruitness. They could be in the fruit, the fruit of one's labors. Ah. Okay, the fruit of the knowledge. So they had to eat the fruit or the, the results of having a knowledge. They knew something. And what did they know? They know good and evil, mm. which means they go around judging things as right or wrong, good or bad, holy or uh, uh devilish or good or evil those kind of judgments is what got them thrown out of paradise because if they were in paradise it would have been good enough but if you've got a yes or no uh, mentality then you're going around judging that paradise and throw that tree out and cut that tree down and uh, make some changes to paradise and pretty soon you're going to change it to something was neither intended nor what it was in the first place. And we Mm -hmm. tend to do that with our lives. We've got a beautiful, wonderful paradise that we live in and keep messing the thing up, trying to fix it because we think something's wrong with it when there's not. Finding problems. Okay, so that's what I was getting back to with that original point of Sabe Sankara Dukkha. Mm-hmm. means that it's not necessarily inherently bad, for instance, that the laptop actually does fail. Or, in fact, if you unplugged it right now and set it on the shelf, all the humans left, and that laptop never gets plugged back in, so it doesn't even matter whether it would ever fire up or not. The fact is is that it's become completely different now than it's sitting on the shelf unplugged than when it's in use. It has changed. That laptop that was opened up and being in use and using Skype and all of that would have Hello? It changes, and when we get stuck on it and we don't like it, it changes. Could then you just we say that last bit again? Yeah, uh, you I just, said, uh, it just froze. Okay. Um, that when you are... Uh, attached to the things when they start to change. Then we uh, create the dukkha. Because mm. the dukkha really is a mental thing, that there's no inherent, actual, deep, inherent suffering, just like there is not deep, inherent value in gold. Mm. What, what am I talking about? Well, Look at gold at 25 something like that, $2,500 an ounce right now. And what are the properties of gold? It's easier to melt. You can make jewelry out of it. It doesn't rust. And now we know that you can conduct electricity through it. And it is also heavy and it's bright and shiny. So what's the difference between bright and shiny gold and gold-plated lead? Because lead has almost the same atomic weight as gold does. They're very, very close. The answer is that humans have made that judgment that gold is valuable. 
Mm. Exactly. But that's the only value it has is in the human imagination. It's like with everything, really. Yes. And so we begin to see that, that everything has a value only because it's a shared delusion. Mm -hmm. So we don't then necessarily go into nihilism when we begin to see those kind of delusions. That we can, in fact, go into that state of, aha, I see that. I see that delusion there. I can see that gold really doesn't have any intrinsic value on its own, that it's completely manufactured. And then we say, wait a minute, money's like that too. Because mm. many people say, yeah, that's why I don't deal in gold. Yeah, but you deal in money, and money is not even as strongly valued over the century. I mean, how good has the U.S. dollar been around? It's been, I mean, since something a little after the Civil War. Mm. Okay, or at best, the first union dollars that came out after the um, uh, the revolution. How long has gold been valuable? A long time. Long time, right? <laughs> we don't even know a time in human existence when it wasn't valuable. Exactly. Until we go really back to uh, maybe down. It's hard to say what the Stone Age is, but definitely. Before we smelted any metals at all, gold was probably about to burst. So, from that level, gold has had that unique quality uh, that uh, that's valued worldwide that any particular currency doesn't have. Mm. An example with that would be ruples. What would you do with ruples if you had them? The only thing you can do with them is take them to a to a particular. Uh, money changer who knows the networks, but he's going to charge you um, a huge amount. But if you mm -hmm. took those same rubles to Russia, now they're worth something in Russia. Why mm -hmm. is that? Because the shared delusion of the people in Russia. So in that regard, we begin to see all kinds of social conventions. Including the first thing you said to me is, how's it going? Mm -hmm. And it's, aha, uh, uh -huh, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, um, the way that we begin to look at the world is to try to see it as it actually is without emotional attachments that in fact we can practice that directly by gladdening the mind and bringing the mind and uh, uh, the feelings up to a state to where uh, we're really happy to see things as they are. Mm. Because the old saying is really true, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, but first it'll piss you off. <laughs> And so it's yeah. better to get into a really good mood first before we get surprised. Because yeah. things sometimes do not equate with our um, delusions, especially if those delusions are widely held. Mm. And 
uh, in the investigation. Sorry, it keeps breaking up. Um, am I freezing on your end? No. No, it's good on this end. Uh, maybe there's some stuff I can close. Just close all of that. That might make it a bit better. Okay. Yeah, I had just closed down the uh, uh, the application that's an internet hog here. Uh, mm. So I can't even see what our internet speed is, but it's working. Uh, but I did just close down Chrome because it had 30 windows open. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I closed mine too. Uh, so, uh, back to this story of Adam and Eve. What it's saying is, is that when we eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil will taste upon the way that we make those choices about what's good or bad. Mm. Now, this fits in almost precisely well, um, though the, the, uh, the idea of this being the original sin uh, kind of clouds the problem. But basically, this business is what in Asia, uh, Hinduism has become known to be the law of karma. That if you do good, you'll get good results. And if you do bad, you'll get bad results. So but I read where, in some of the suttas, um, well, in, in one sutta, that, um, I can't remember which one, but it said, um, and, and what is the result of karma? And it said, that which arises in this life, that which arises in the next life, and that which arises in the life after that. And where did you read that? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it was around a month ago. Um, let's see if I can um, Google it. As, does it sound something like this? As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through rounds of rebirth, not another. And um, then he says, uh, Yes, Venerable Sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. No, I don't think it's that. Okay. 
Because um, this is the one that uh, is normally associated with that kind of stuff. But you can hear the similarities. You may hear it different in um, the expression. But what I just said, did you hear that? It is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. It is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. So what does that mean? Uh, it means exactly what you were just reading or just quoting. Uh-huh. This is a little bit more formal definition by the way that it's expressed in Brahmin literature. Oh. Okay. But the, this is what the Buddha has to say in that. Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated that consciousness to be dependently arisen. Since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. But you, misguided man, have represented, misrepresented us by your wrong grasp and, ig, ig, and injured yourself and stored up much demerit. For, the, for this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, what do you think? Has this bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, kindled even a spark of wisdom in his dhamma and uh, discipline? And they answer, how can that be, venerable sir? No, sir. When this was said, bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, sat uh, silent, dismayed, with his shoulders drooped, head down, glum, and without response. Then, knowing this, the Buddha uh, the Blessed One told him, Misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me uh, that this bhikkhu Sati, son of a fisherman, uh, does when he misrepresents us with his wrong uh, grasp and injures himself and stores up much demerit. No, venerable sir, for in many discourses the Blessed One has stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. This is actually the passage that is uh, used to try to justify rebirth as different from reincarnation because reincarnation has this consistently of consciousness that the Buddha keeps pointing out is temporary. It's dependently arisen. And we're talking about very quick. Things have to happen really quick. And when they happen with this, you have that. Without this, you don't have that. So rebirth is, is like, well, reincarnation is when the body dies, they say there's a soul which goes into another body um, that's a, just been born. What is or the something. soul? Exactly. What is this soul? Exactly. It's, um, it's, I suppose it's what people think is consciousness. Um, right. So, 
with rebirth, it's how it's how the consciousness is is changing every time. It's no, it's um, it's like how we. Before you get too confused, let's say that there are two levels of answer. There is the ordinary answer that's trying to salvage uh, reincarnation. And then there is the noble view that's looking at things in this present moment. So which side of rebirth are you wanting to uh, try to define? Those um, that are still trying to get a rebirth out of reincarnation? No, um, uh, uh, what's uh, the noble way? Um, okay. But it's um, it's like mind states that we get in. Precisely so. That in fact there are four woeful states that we tend to get into. And they and we get through those to those four woeful states through the four modes of clinging. That by clinging to something, we are dragged into that state. Mm. And so wanting something and wanting something we don't have drags us into the state of, or we are reborn in the state of the hungry ghost. Is there always a physical tension with uh, clinging to things? Yes, there really is. Because I do feel it. Um... And and I know it because I've felt the lack of it, and it's been very freeing. Look at how a child will throw a tantrum to try to get what he wants at one age, and then the next thing he'll do is he'll uh, frustratingly walk and dance around in the aisle of the store. Yeah. Okay. So we stop dancing around the aisle of the store, and start dancing around the aisle of the store in the mind, but we're still agitated when we don't get what we want. Mm. And it expresses that way. Another way of saying it is that life sucks mm. when you suck. Mm. When you're sucking on something, life sucks. Mm-hmm. And if we're not sucking on anything, if we're satisfied, then life doesn't suck anymore. So that's an example of one of these woeful states. And it is a primary teaching of the Buddha that the, uh, his actual teaching of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is, is that not just in this life, but right now, you can come out of suffering into a state of no suffering. And that everybody tries to bend it into something in the future. Mm. But all it really is is a teaching of can you come out of your uh, woeful states right now and enjoy being human, possibly for the first time in weeks. And so um, these woeful states are states that we are reborn into as a self that is in that state. So if we're in a hell state, then the words that we will use as I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm pissed off, I can't stand this situation, and that's a kind of a hell state. You see all of that I, me, and my in there? 
but but I mean even um these these thoughts like oh I'm angry I'm pissed off they they still come but um even if you don't actively identify with them right like you can um... uh, yes and if you're wise with that when you do see them come up you'll throw them out you'll say uh-huh, I yeah. see you I see you coming up that I am not that is what you're beginning to say because the thought or even if it's not a fully ver- verbalized thought mm. because a lot of thoughts are pre-verbal yeah yes it in fact there is a range between feelings where it's only a feeling and then there is a range where it's a feeling mixed with a thought but there's an intermediate range in there to where it's a feeling that has a direction and a point and a purpose but it doesn't have the naming done yet. Yeah. And, and, and so they, these things the are concept. interrelated. They go back and forth. It's and the we same can see thing. You Pardon? just do the same you just do the same thing even with those as well, right? You just you just throw them out. Exactly. Exactly. Because this is in fact dukkha. That's it. Being pulled into one of these states of wanting something that we don't have or pulled into the state of being pissed off, jerked around, a feeling of out of control. Another state would be going along to get along, doing what you're told to do, not enjoying what we're doing, but you have to have that job. If you don't work, you don't eat, and we don't care if you don't like the work. You just got to do it. Mm. And if you don't do the work, we're going to kick your ass and that's how our society is built and i hope i can give you that with a teaspoon of smiles and sugar because otherwise it's like oh no that's the way things really are aren't they it is sucks the way they are because there are so many people out there sucking Mm. so much greed or kind of suck and suck (laughs) just ain't got enough while most of the people are just going along to get along they keep trudging along they don't have enough they're not satisfied with their life they're just doing what they were told to do like they've got no choice it's like the frontal cortex is almost completely missing but they don't think at all but they can be herded Mm. They've got a really strong herding mentality. And how are they herded? With one or the other. Either through their fear, which can be controlled with anger, or their promise of something that they want. So they either go to hell or become a hungry ghost. But meanwhile, they still are in this donkey world. Hmm. Because they don't ever get the value of either what they're promised to get them angry or promised by giving them something that they they want to have the democrats are just as interested in not ever giving anybody any benefits as republicans are oh is it yeah but nobody ever expects anything anyway what do you mean i mean they've been donkeyfied ah yes They've been donkeyfied. That's exactly what's happened. And that uh, um, 
But there is the occasion, like in the novel, the Frankenstein novel, where finally the people were so fed up with being afraid of this monster that when one guy got up and got angry, Everyone the whole did. crowd went after him with, with uh, uh, pitchforks and, and uh, torches. Um, with one Frankenstein monster, that works. But when you've got a whole police force full of Frankenstein monsters, it's a little bit more work. Yeah. But... That's what's happening, you see, right across the U.S. right now. Mm. Is is that a lot of fed up, a lot. But there, but I don't think many of them say uh, that just because we're fed up, we will do something about it. Most of them will say we're fed up, but I don't expect to get anywhere with this. Yeah, you just got to let them know we're fed up, but we're not, we can't change it. Yep. And that's the way that they uh, will eventually. Uh, take a morsel when they could own the house. Mm. Uh, but this is the point in it. We get into these animal states and stay there. It's, we're trained into it from, child, from childhood in the sense of clean your room, mm. do your ABCs, do your one, th one two, three. Go to school. Do what you're told to do. You know, this is how uh, almost all children relate to the outside world is either uh, I'll go along with the rules to get along or how can I get out from under them without the repercussions mm -hmm. like being guilty or caught, uh, punished, that, that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of world that uh, is invented unnecessarily for the child. But that's the way that our society works. And that's actually the way that it worked all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And so we wind up getting into these woeful states. And we get into the habit of it since with childhood. And the time that it happens is very specific at that point uh, in the process of Paticca Samapada, when it goes from Salayatana, which is the internal representation, then to pasa, that's what contacts us, giving rise to vedana, the feelings, which then leads to wanting, and that leads to the grasping and clinging, and that grasping and clinging itself is that opening into that new world. That's the birth of the self into the world of hell, is because I want something. Could you say that process again? Yes, I will. Because it's a good one to understand. Mm. And I'm starting right at that middle point of the Salayatana is the internal representation, what I call mentalizing, that many people will use the word realizing something. When they understand it, that's what impacts us, is our own internal creation, which may be very close to the outside world. That's what we're actually shooting for, but we often miss and we wind up creating something on the inside that is not actually exactly. accurate compared to what's actually on the outside world. For instance, we may mix fear in with it. Yeah. Or in fact, it's nothing but just a stranger. Mm. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> but we can also uh, respond to that stranger uh, as if he is a mark, something to be exploited. Mm. 
and that's that's our sankara. That's our method of operation. And that's so, how you perceive them. It's how you perceive them. That's what we mean by perception. Mm. And that we pre actually is perceiving, but we call it perceiving. Yep. Because it's after we actually see it that now we really do see it. Yeah. So maybe the perceiving was what happened with the eyes, and the postceiving uh, was what happens after we recreate the output. Exactly. And that's what impacts us. That's the salayantana. The salayantana impacts us. The impacting is pasa, giving rise to feelings, vedana. That vedana leads then to uh, the wanting, or excuse me, the liking leads to wanting. This happens in the mind very, very quickly in order. The liking something leads to wanting. The wanting leads to grasping. The grasping is the birthing, the becoming of the self in that hell world associated with it. The hell worlds or the uh, um, um, the woeful states are the, is the term for them, including hell. But the hell, the hungry ghost, those, the states of fear, which is called the Asuras, and the, um, uh, the animal state, which is basically our herding mentality. So if we get afraid, we'll bunch together. And you can see that herding mentality in high schools when uh, one of the... Sorry, you're breaking up again. Okay. So you'll see the, those states in high school, you said. That was yeah. the last thing. Okay. You'll see that in high school when a perfectly nice-looking girl, because of her own insecurities, will try to gather her clique around her. Mm. That she wants to feel good about herself by collecting and having a bunch of friends. And then that, that group of friends that she's got collected around her, they sense a power of a group or a clan and now they can go and bully other kids in the class to where it's actually based not upon the power of the clan, it's based upon the insecurity of the leader. Yeah, that's why um, uh, someone mentioned to me recently how um, everyone wants a lot of friends, but they don't really want friendships or, or they don't know if they'll even like it. Usually they don't, but everyone just wants a lot of friends. Because that that um, feeling of having a lot of friends gives us a feeling of security. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily give us a feeling of camaraderie, which is mm. what you're making. That's the distinction. But it does yep. give us the, the, the hurting instinct that yep. we've got a group around us and that helps us to feel good. That's very instinctual. Mm. And that's actually that animal mentality that we were talking about earlier. The, the, the need to collect together in a group out of fear. And this is also something quite interesting, according to the Buddha, that this kind of um, instinct at a deep level that we can actually see in birds and even fish when they school together that at the time um, of the development of this herding instinct, uh, it had the quality of you've got to go along to get along. Mm -hmm. That's a very important quality of it, that if you are, in fact, 
are contrary to the herd, then you can get kicked out of the herd. Out. And then it's more dangerous to be on the outside of the herd. But that herding instinct, you can see it in sheep, where one, one sheepdog can manage 100 sheep. How can that be possible? Because every one of those sheep was afraid of the dog. If you had one sheep that was just saying, hmm, I don't know, I'm bigger than you are. You give away. You sound too much. You just bark too much, dog. And the sheep just dotted eye away from it. He wouldn't be able to control those sheep anymore. Because one renegade and a long go. So it's kind of important to be able to, with our society, to herd people and keep them in line, to keep them together by barking at them. Authority figures. Exactly so. Exactly. Until you recognize, wait a minute, I see what's going on, and I do not have to go along to get along. Mm -hmm. So if we go down into that going along part, this is at that basic instinct level. Um, when it becomes human in modern times, that's our society. Our nest is actually big now, and that big nest has a lot of rules. Mm. And some of those rules come from the government. Some of those rules come from religion. Some of those rules come from the educational system. Some of those rules, uh, many of them come from business. So you can, you can kind of just pick which ones you want, really. Actually, there's another way of doing it. And this is the way with the Dhamma. We can actually have the teaching of the Buddha as the only rule we need. Mm -hmm. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And if you can follow that one rule, moment by moment, as you go along, you'll be doing just fine. That's true. That's all the rule that you ever need, and anything else is going along to getting along, and sometimes that's the way to reduce and eliminate suffering, is just go along with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes you want to sneak out the back door. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> So this is the whole way that we begin to live. This is a new lifestyle. This is the noble way of doing it. That we don't go along with all of the rules. In fact, we want to find those rules that we have been following so that we can stop following them automatically. Most of the rules that we follow were learned in childhood. Mm -hmm. And most of those rules that we follow are pre-verbal in that regard so that they wind up being almost all emotional rules that we follow. There's many different examples of that. The guy looks at himself in the mirror. He does not like what he sees. And then thoughts from that uh, manufactured quality of not liking what he's seeing. It says, you ought to go on a diet. Mm -hmm. And then ought to go on a diet. Okay, I ought to go to the diet. I'll go on a diet. And so now we have a dialogue going between the parent and the child, ego states. But the original thing was the feeling of not liking mm. what we saw. Buddha's got an answer to that. Don't look in mirrors. Those mirrors are not a true reflection of what's going on. And you can't even see what's in the mirror correctly without adding your own crap to it. That's true. So it's just a good idea to not use mirrors. So that's one of the items that are forbidden for monks. I think oh, also really? it had, 
Yeah, I think also it has the quality that uh, uh, silver uh, painted uh, pieces of glass kind of mirror that are common or were up until the last 30 or 40 years. Now they look like a piece of plastic with uh, some silver light coating on the back of it because they've, they've come down from two or $300 down to uh, uh, dirt cheap. But in the time of the Buddha, they were normally uh, a polished piece of metal, like brass. And for that reason, they were quite valuable. Mm. And so that also has the, the quality of the mirrors in, in the time of the Buddha were probably very rare and, and quite expensive because they didn't have the kind of mirroring uh, system that we have now. In fact, glass didn't... You, wasn't able to do good with with uh, uh, with mirrors. Um, that when I was a kid, uh, the old school that I uh, went to, the windows in it were were made of the glass of that period of time, which was probably eighteen eighties period of time, and you could see the clear distortions, the kind of distortions that were in that window glass would not make a mirror worthwhile having. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's another side of it is, is that uh, uh, it's only been in modern times when they could, when they figured out how to make glass that actually was see-through without a whole lot of irregularities, bubbles, uh, all kinds of stuff in it. That, uh, so, uh, I would say that that had a quality of it also, is in the old days, mirrors were different than they are now. But that the whole idea is that we don't need such a device, idea. regardless of what value it has. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to that point about um, that we make judgments. We expect things to be bad. So we have to eat the fruit of that knowledge of evil. And so Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that's why the Buddha teaches, and when he's talking about uh, this, is that that's, uh, re- this is at the very heart of the teachings of the Buddha, is to avoid that dukkha side, to avoid the, the evil. Uh, basically, in the and uh, um, in the in the Dhammapada, there is a point that says to do good, to avoid the evil, and to purify the mind. But what Adam and Eve got into instead was keep eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This is good. This is bad. I like that. Those people are wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we we spend, uh, and they call this the original sin, and if you think about it, it could possibly be uh, one of the few original sins that has been passed down to every child, generation after generation, with very, very few exceptions. Mm. Very few exceptions. One would be the Dalai Lama. The other one would be Tarzan. Completely different outcomes, of course, but. (laughs) 
but most most human babies are raised by humans and that's almost a human tragedy mm. wouldn't it be nice if a whole generation of humans could be um uh raised by the quality of the monks that uh were teachers for the Dalai Lama just yeah. one generation that's all we need and then the rest of humanity doesn't have the kind of problems that we have now but in fact it's yeah. got to be done one at a time one at a time we cannot get the whole herd to go along with the dhamma because mm-hmm. the only way that you can control the herd is through fear and we're trying and we have to uh to con- uh, let us say, not control them, but inform them through wisdom that they don't have to live according to their fear. Mm. And so it's very difficult to teach. This is, and the Buddha talks about that, that uh, the, the Dhamma is only for a select few. Initially. Well, with seven billion people on the planet Earth, a good few might be a hundred million or so. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I imagine it would be good if if everyone could benefit from it. Yes, but a lot of people are not because hmm, because I'll say because of circumstances, and it could be possible that the circumstances could uh, come about that way. We have our plans. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's in fact, when, when someone gets full of the Dhamma, when, it, when we become enthusiastic, when we become eager for the Dhamma, then that's basically all we kind of think about and the only thing that we say. And then the only thing that we have is eagerness and joy of the Dhamma to spread. Mm. So naturally, that's what's going to happen, you see. So it happens, it spreads naturally. Everyone, you could think of it as uh, uh, not a Corona-19 kind of virus, but kind of a, a mental virus or a meme that once you're infected with this, your whole life improves, mm. which means that when you go around other people, they get infected naturally and their whole life improves. Mm. I have actually seen this on a number of occasions that men, both Thai and Westerner, have joined the Sangha and remained monks. And when I knew them in the old days, it looked like they didn't know a thing about the Dhamma. And they continued along that way, just being in the monkhood. And then 20 years later, and all of a sudden, they got the Dhamma. They got caught on fire while they weren't looking. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just kind of, when you're in that environment, things begin to um, happen at, at that level. So uh, just being around the Dhamma is beneficial mm-hmm. for uh, everyone around you when you've got the Dhamma. When you're like them, when you go with you go to them and become like them, then there's no Dhamma there. But if you go to them with the Dhamma, then they're going to get a bit of it. Mm. Yep. We can all we can also call this sympathetic joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Mudita. What I'm talking about with you is Mudita. 
This is sympathetic joy. First, you have to have that joy, which is the, uh, the metta. And then you can see through karuna, you can see uh, uh, what value the Dhamma has for people. And then you can go, uh, what, breathe all over them. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here we're talking about the, the breath of life, the breath of the Dhamma. Uh, so this is a, a, the quality that happens, but it can really happen only on a one-on-one-by-one basis. Mm-hmm. That is very hard to light the fire of 100 students, even if it lasts for 10 days in a retreat. The retreats are only a little bit successful. They've got really enormous value. But they're, they're, they're the most value if the student is well ready for that uh, retreat, does it well, and then has good follow-up after the retreat. And unfortunately, most retreats don't have any of that. Mm. Yep. Uh, so they, they have limited value. But, but meanwhile, the whole idea that we're talking about here is that when someone has the Dhamma, they can't help but spread it. Yeah. And so they need to be encouraged to spread it. And that's part of the plan, is to encourage people to get, uh, to get um, uh, eager and uh, enthusiastic about the Dhamma, and then they'll want to spread it. And I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of people who become thirsty for the Dhamma. So we're needing a whole lot of guys like yourself that are out there spreading it. Mm-hmm. And, and then you say, well, I don't know enough about the Dhamma yet. And the answer to that is, do you know how to smile yet? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, just give them, give them a smile and it'll help them. Uh, we need to come out of that uh, eating the fruit of the knowledge of evil because there is really the only evil that exists is the evil that men have created because they're dissatisfied they don't uh, like it just a simple feeling other than that there's nothing evil uh, that's true And so this is a new way of looking at that, uh, that story of Adam and Eve. I don't know how much value you had put in it. You didn't know about Apple, so I guess you didn't have much investment because they've argued for centuries over was it an Apple or not. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know about that. I, I always thought it was the Apple. Well, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil is not an apple, the fruit of the, um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, is that Adam and Eve, or who eats it, throw themselves out of their own paradise. They create the evil and bring it into the paradise and destroy the place with it. Yep. Don't need to do that. Don't need to do that, right. And But we've been trained to do that, and we've been trained to do that with our emotional feelings that have to do with self-preservation and fear and nesting instincts and all of that has been manipulated now by this society 
and that this is our the culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. And if we grasp and cling to that culture, it will continuously dissatisfy us. But that's the promise that it will satisfy us. The business people, they promise you if you buy this car, you'll get the girl that's standing beside the car in the ad. Mm. Or nowadays, they think they sell power. In the old days, they sold sex. But It's power, is it? I suppose it, it it kind of is, isn't it? Everyone wants to become successful. And so they have to buy a big truck or something. Yeah. It's also uh, quite porting in the sense of, um, <laughs> I think it all, he says it all when he says that, well, sometimes a cigar is actually a cigar. But only sometimes. Because <laughs> mostly it's a phallic. Just like a gun or a big car, which is back to the sex in the first place. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, that's what business does. It's all a bait and switch. They don't want to sell you what you want to buy. They want to sell you happiness, that you'll be happy with what you buy. Mm-hmm. Which is always a bait and switch. If you look at these commercials on television, the first few seconds of it is look how hard they're struggling without our product. And then they announce the product, and the next scene is look how they look how happy their life is now that they have the product. So, what do you what do you think about generosity in business? In that, a successful business is one that wants to be generous and provide something which people can actually use, uh... as opposed to just being greedy. That's a whole world of generosity, and that, um, uh, yes, it comes with altruism. Altruism. So, in fact, all truism. So, altruistic uh, companies are out to do good. Mm-hmm. And I, that's right. And so, I would applaud them. But I would also uh, make the point to be careful. But in fact, generally, what that means is if it's intentionally and advertising to be altruistic, generally, they're not selling a product so much as they're giving away a service and they call themselves an NGO. Non-governmental organization or something like that. Yeah. But but uh, the best example of it is the Red Cross where 80% of the financing that comes in, the revenue of the Red Cross, goes for uh, the carrying and administrative cost and uh, political uh, stuff that they do in Washington and all of that. And only 20% of the money that they take in actually goes for Red Cross work. It's administrative cost. So how does that happen? It happens because... Once people, ordinary people, join an organization, and ordinary people do want to join an altruistic organization, but when they do, they bring their own ego in so that now the people who work for the organization want to keep the organization alive. They are that organization. I am my job is the mentality, and for that, they want to keep the organization going no matter what because I am that organization. That's especially true if it's a political appointment. 
Yep. Okay. So in this this way, then all uh, altruistic organizations are in danger of falling into greed. Mm. But any one of them is also in danger of falling out of greed. Let's see if we can get some of that going. <laughs> because the CEOs can wake up, too. Yep. I think, in fact, that's a kind of a thing that happens when the old guys, they have spent so much of their lives being so greedy and nasty and dirty dealing with it. And that now they've got all this cash in late in life and they're still not happy. Mm. And so they get then the idea of, oh, well, maybe I can give some of this money away. I would feel good if I could. I heard that. I think that happened. That's happened in Asia a few times, hasn't it? It happens all over the place and it happens over and over again. Let me ah. give you some examples. Uh, Mellon Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Down Foundation. Uh, uh, currently, Bill Gates Foundation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Zucker Even Zuckerberg's wife is really into doing foundational work of giving some of this, um, let us say, hard fought and dirty one money back because they're not getting any value or benefit out of hoarding it. Mm hmm. But couldn't they have learned that at three million? Why did they have to go to three hundred million or three billion? <laughs> when is enough enough? Yeah. When when do we kick in our generosity? Because it doesn't matter about how much money we have. It has to do with can we wake up to find out that hoarding is painful, wanting more and more, and generosity is nice. It gives us a feeling of wealth. I've got enough. I'm satisfied. And here I've got some extra. Okay, so this is, it, it gives us the feeling of wealth. Generosity is a marvelous thing to teach uh, students, is to teach them to be generous. If you're in a city, start giving quarter at a time to the guys on the street. Mm -hmm. And you begin to eventually start taking them donuts and coffee. Which in New York is about five dollars, <laughs> well, but Billy has been doing that now in Corona nineteen. That's not happening. But this is the idea that we have: is let's be generous. Mm. We can be generous to each other. We can be generous to the general population. Ultimately, the the most generous we can be is to teach just one other person to, and give them the gift of the Dhamma. Mm. That's the best gift that you can give someone is the gift of the Dhamma. But you can't broadcast it on television. It do doesn't work that way. It has to be detailed and set out and so that the students see it. Mm -hmm. So um, back to the point and let us uh, do the wrap up with this in this regard what we have been down dancing around this whole talk today is actually what is referred to as um the second fetter of the first three fetters this second fetter in the pali is known as sila bata paramasa 
and that that is uh, um, actually translated then in something like rites, rules, rituals, laws, ceremonies, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but many people have the idea that it means only that short list. That's what I thought initially. But in fact, no, it is everything that you have come to from the past, all of the laws, all of the rituals, even the ones that you learned in high school. Mm. And many of them that are artificial and don't apply in all cases. Certain handshakes go well if you're a Mason in the Mason Hall, but you don't do that handshake out on the street, you know. And so there's just all kinds of human rituals that, that we have set up. Uh, much of religion, in fact, is ceremonialized. Mm. And in fact, if you look at it like that, then that's what a retreat is. A retreat is a ceremonialized, organized method of practicing meditation, which doesn't need any of the trappings of a retreat. That's true. I've never been on one myself, but I, I, I do want to go on one at some oh, point. Oh, you haven't? Well, we got to get you into one. <laughs> <laughs> Retreats have their value. They really do. The mm. retreat has a value of really getting away from it all. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's what I've noticed, that everything just um you know just being able to get away from everything gives a lot of peace of mind that can you know and then you can sort of concentrate a lot better okay there's less stuff right but getting back to that the retreat itself though has has wound up coming away from the actual value of the retreat which still has the value in there but it looks like to people from the outside that there's a lot of ritual and ceremony and bell ringing and squatting and bowing and all kinds of stuff that they teach in there uh, that really has nothing to do with getting your head straightened out. So that's also, in fact, true about almost all of the rites, rules, rituals, laws, ceremonies, and everything else in society. That basically what we've tried to do is plug up all the loopholes because there's always someone who's looking for a way out to a loophole. So we keep thinking that we got to close all the loopholes. Mm. Where in fact, all the loopholes are closed when you only have one rule. <laughs> and if it's a rule that works, then it covers everything. And if it don't work, then <laughs> everything's a loophole. Mm. And that is Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. So that's the kind of the new rule that we take on, as opposed to any and all of the other rules that we become free from that. We recognize I am not that rule. And I do not have to feel the way the people who abide by that rule feel. I can mm. feel the way I want to feel. So basically, it's like this. This is a, a kind of last example. Donald Trump is there on stage doing his performance. 
and about half the people are supporting him. They like him. They love him, and they'll eat anything he has to say. And the other slightly larger group of people, they hate his guts. They know he's lying. They can't stand it, and they do anything they can to get rid of him. And both of them are missing the point that Donald Trump is actually a stage actor. He's a stand-up comedian. And that if you stop believing any of the bullshit or any of the sides that anybody is taking and just look at him, you can see he's quite a performer. He's yeah. funny. He's a comedian. He's actually <laughs> But really don't good. get attached to anything he says. <laughs> and so that's the way that we look at it is don't get attached to any of this stuff that's coming from um the political world or anything that anybody says that is not who you are mm-hmm. that your your new set of rules is not am i a democrat or am i a republican no not any of that stuff mm. nothing and that's the rule about sila bata paramasa and the way that we come with that is by stop making choices about their evil in the sense that we're good or we're evil, and therefore feel bad, mm. is to stop that judgmental way of breaking things out as good or bad, and just let everything be just marvelous, okay, mm. sufficient, satisfying. Yeah, siding with one thing kind of limits you anyway, limits you quite a lot. All right, well, we'll continue on later. Do you have any questions about what we talked about today? Um, yeah, I do, actually. Not about what we spoke about, um, but a friend of mine um, did ask me if I could ask you something um, about impatience and how it connects to the fetter of restlessness, because they, they noticed that in the suitors they've read, they could only find stuff about the hindrance of restlessness, but not really the fetter. And they were just wondering if um, if impatience has to do with the fetter of restlessness. Okay. The hindrance of restlessness is the event that happens in the moment, in the mind. The fetter of restlessness is that deeply down, deep down um, uh, item that's uh, very, very close to the self-preservation instinct in the sense that we don't feel secure. And that's the source of restlessness is the lack of, uh, of security. We feel insecure. We don't feel settled. But the restlessness that comes up in the mind is that intense wanting things right now to be different than they are. But that's not the only kind of restlessness that's there. That's kind of impatient kind. But restlessness can also be expressed in boredom. It can be expressed also in the sense of confusion, of not knowing what to do. And so we, we don't know what to do, so we're not doing anything. But boy, do we really ever want to do something. Yeah, I know that. Okay. So it has that quality of wanting to do something to fix a problem 
that may not even have a clear definition. It's not a conceptualized problem, but it is an emotional feeling of insecurity. And that what people generally want to do is they want to, uh, let us say, dream up a problem and then dream up a solution and then go do the solution to that problem, thinking that that then will help this anxiety and or restlessness go away. Mm. And it doesn't. So that's delusional thinking that I can create a problem and then get that problem solved. And when I solve that problem, then uh, I will feel satisfied and satisfactory again. But if that, in fact, that problem that we solved and that item that we thought was a problem really didn't have anything to do with the anxiety, then of course it's not going to help eliminate it. Mm. Generally, that also applies to uh, impatience in the sense that we are impatient about getting something done and wanting that to be done without recognizing that um, you think that you're going to stop being impatient because you get what you want. But really, generally, impatience is just wanting something that we don't have, which is a different kind of restlessness. In fact, it's even labeled as a different kind of hindrance, and that is wanting something we don't have. Mm-hmm. And wanting it and wanting it and wanting it and wanting it. So we become impatient because we think we'll be good or satisfied when we get what we want. Mm-hmm. What your friend needs to do is to start looking directly at that feeling that he's calling impatience. Mm. And investigate that and check that out. And then he can start saying, every time I see that impatience, aha, I see you, Mara, and throw that impatience out rather than trying to get the desire of that impatience. They said that it doesn't, they said that it's very rare that it happens to them, but it's something that they want to work on. Well, work on it when it happens. Mm. Why take a car out of a ditch that's not in the ditch? Mm. So why should we practice pulling cars out of the ditch? If the car is not in the ditch. That's true. So when the car gets in the ditch, now let's work on and do a very good job of getting that car out of the ditch. Mm-hmm. That's when you deal with impatience. All right. It's when, it, when it's there to deal with. <laughs> Doesn't make, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, so that's the answer to that in short. Mm. Except for my, I got at least one one parting joke. Okay. And that is uh, the prayer about patience. There's a Christian prayer about patience. Oh, is it? Yeah, it goes like this. Lord, give me patience right bloody now. Give me patience right bloody now. That's the joke because it, you know, sometimes yep. patience takes patience. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we can see that maybe that patience is not 
all just restlessness. It may be wanting something to happen so he'll feel better later or wanting something that he doesn't have. So these things can be mixed together. So investigate. What does he mean by the word patience? Okay. All right. So we'll see you later. See you later.